Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday uh, for Tuesday, June 29th, 20, uh, 2021. I'm Ken Rimple, and today I'm a solo act. Uh, Sue John is not here today. Uh, so we're going to do uh, look at some developer news and some things that have come up. Uh, that we can talk about. Uh, and I'm glad to have you here. First of all, if you uh, want to know more information about us, uh, you can go to chariotsolutions.com. Um, we uh, will talk a little later about uh, how we're hiring. But uh, at the moment, let's start off by looking at some of the most recent blog articles. If you go to the Chariot Solutions website and head over to the blog under resources, uh, First one is by our producer extraordinaire, Becca Refford, who worked really hard on producing all of ETE, Philly Emerging Technologies with the Enterprise 2021. There's a nice wrap up here uh, of, you know, how we did virtual again this year, um, all the logistics we went through. So if you're planning a conference and you want to see what kind of goes into it, you can definitely check that out. Uh, you know, we're going to be actually making uh, all of the videos available to people, whether or not they registered for ETE on August 1st. So you'll get all the videos that we have, all the great talks by Alan Kay and a whole bunch of other people as well then. So look for that. And the best way to find that information is go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions. That's our landing page for all of our videos. If you subscribe to that, you'll be notified whenever there's a change, and we'll certainly push out when the videos start arriving, uh, if you forget. Um, also, there are playlists. There will be an ETE 2021 playlist here, in addition to our super playlist, which will have everything for all the 10 plus, well, it's more like almost 15, 16 years now of ETE, and a lot of our other things as well, a lot of tutorials that I've done and other people have done. Uh, some of our other conferences like IoT on AWS, which went into all the Internet of Things features uh, that we did in 2019. That was a really good one. We did uh, one on single page applications, a tutorial on RxJS. Uh, it's all in here, tons and tons of stuff. So, And it's all free. We don't require you to register. Just go ahead and subscribe if you want to keep track of them. And otherwise, hit the playlist up and please consume our content. We'd love to give it to you. Another uh, blog entry uh, is by Michael Geis. Michael Geis is a user experience expert and project uh, manager. Uh, and so he has a, a talk, or a, I should say a uh, article here called Design Thinking Crash Course, uh, Journal My Health. Now, Journal My Health is a mobile application that uh, Chariot was uh, involved in building. Uh, some of our developers uh, worked on that. And Journal My Health is a mobile app where you can track symptoms for things like COVID and other things that you're dealing with and kind of have a daily journal that you can then take to your doctor and share with your doctor. Um, so that's launched. That's in the app stores for Android and for iOS. And we're documenting a lot of the process around this. So Michael Geis was integral to that. Uh, and he goes through kind of the design thinking philosophy and how uh, we as a company approached, uh, you know, figuring out how to, to build and put together the requirements for and the usability of and the features of Journal My Health. So that's a nice kind of walkthrough of that, really clearly written, great graphics, uh, and kind of great outline of the steps. And then, of course, a link to the app. Um, so that's also on our blog by Michael Geis on June 15th. And then we have uh, our uh, AWS uh, blog entry of the of the of Du Jour by Keith Gregory. Um, he has fantastic articles. If you just click on his name, you'll see them all. Um, all on things, uh, you know, Amazon related and sometimes other cloud environments too. Uh, but he's a very, very deep AWS expert. And he is talking about how many availability zones do you need? How many places are you going to, how many cloud 
uh, centers are you going to be, uh, you know, hosting in? Uh, so an availability zone is an isolated location within each region, and the regions are the geographical locations where different data centers uh, are. So he talks about how they're, uh, how they're priced, you know, like um, what it goes into if you have to put something in two availability zones. Uh, you know, there's going to be obviously cost because you're deploying things in more than one place. Um, talks about if you only have one versus if you have two for high availability, three for a quorum, um, you know, so, so kind of failing over to a second set of servers, that kind of thing. Um, and clearly I'm quickly reading this. Um, and then he mentions serverless at the end. So if you're curious about his thinking around availability zones when discussing it with customers, you can check that out. And again, that's a Chariot Solutions slash blog, or you can re you get to it from resources blog. Okay, so that's the content uh, that's uh, been deployed lately. Let's get into some of the news. So the first one is Windows 11. I guess it's about time, right? Um, Windows 10 has been around for what? It's got to be five years. I don't remember. It's probably in the blog article, um, but that's not what I took notes on. So I'll scroll down and see. But notice how Windows 11, um, if we take a look at the desktop, to me, that looks a lot like a really good like Mac desktop. Um, they've really simplified the look and feel of Windows. Of course, you're never going to get away from the widgets on the bottom right, you know, where you're always looking for your battery life and things like that. I'm sure that's not going away. But there's been a big push to make the desktop simple and quiet and easy to work with. Now, I as I was taking some notes about this blog on blogs.windows.com um, by, who, who wrote this? Let me just double check. This is um, Panos Panay, who's the chief product officer for Windows and devices. Um, but as I was taking notes of this, I started thinking about all the things that Apple is already doing or other things already do. And so I'm going to give you a real quick uh, dime store tour here. So the first thing I thought was um, the start menu with the search it's kind of like what Apple's done with Spotlight for years. They're trying to kind of make the search front and center so you can do what we do on the Apple side of things, you know. So if you want to launch something, you can spotlight it and bring it up, you know. Um, so that looks very familiar. The, the, the desktop with the icons at the bottom, the shortcuts, that looks very familiar. Uh, and they're simplifying the desktop and kind of getting to that kind of clean and fresh and quiet as they're putting it. Uh, beautiful uh, look and feel starts at the center. And it does uh, cloud-based searching and Microsoft 365. Uh, so it'll look at all your documents, I guess, on all the Microsoft cloud environments, all of your Microsoft documents. If you're a document center person, especially if you do a lot of office, um, certainly you're going to be at your fingertips. So this is really good for business users. Um, and it doesn't matter what platform device you're on, as long as you back them up to a cloud, even if it was an Android or iOS device. So that should be interesting to see. The next thing that they've done is one thing that uh, Apple, frankly, doesn't do that well right now out of the box. And I'm talking about managing windows. Um, oh, look at that. My real book is up. So who wants to learn rhythm changes? Um, so check this out. So it, on a Mac, what you can do if, you're, if your windows are sized wrong, uh, you know, you can certainly click on the big green button and it completely maximizes it and takes over the screen. But then you've got a second, you know, screen you have to swipe left and right. And that's annoying for full screen. Um, you can now kind of hold down on this and tile window to the left or right. So that's new. What a lot of people do uh, or move to the other monitor like I goofed up and did. What a lot of people do is they use something called Better Touch Tool. Uh, and so Better Touch Tool or Better Snap Tool is what it's called now. 
basically emulates how Windows 10 does snapping windows. So you can kind of drag it up to a border, drag it here, drag it there. I like that tool. It costs a couple bucks, but I personally use it a lot. Um, you could also, if you wanted to, and this is a little shortcut I didn't know until I got annoyed and didn't want to install a better uh, snap tool, you can hold down Shift and Alt and click the plus, and that zooms without taking over a screen. Uh, shift, Alt, click green. So anyway, so that's a, a, a little Mac tool uh, tip there for you. But what they've done in Windows uh, 11 is they've created this kind of snap uh, layout thing where you can quickly uh, tell it to tile two windows or make something two-thirds and one-thirds or three panels or, you know, break it up into quadrants or whatever. And so uh, that is a snap layout, snap groups, and desktops together. So they've been really working on the usability of that. And frankly, that is an area where Windows 10 uh, was a lot easier out of the box to manage screens. Uh, if you want to just quickly throw two screens next to each other, it was pretty good at doing that. And that's why I end up installing tools like Better Snap Tool. Um, so that's something that, that you know, that, that uh, they're getting right. Uh, now they're getting into more uh, with chat. So for example, uh, they're going to have um, built-in integration with uh, chat from Microsoft Teams. So you can, you know, chat, voice, video, text. I guess it's kind of like them being more like us, an integrated Slack kind of environment now. Um, and so, you know, certainly we've had messages in, in Apple and, you know, had the Apple iMessage tool where you could kind of send messages over the internet and not spend, send a text. And you've got, you know, FaceTime and things like that. They're trying to get to that point too. So then they're being a little more coming to the modern age, kind of like Apple is um, kind of trying to reach parity there. So chat from Microsoft Teams is getting pulled in. And also it defaults down uh, if someone you want to communicate with isn't on Teams, just like you can on Messages app, you can send SMSs from here too. So that's an interesting and cool feature for Windows users as well. Um, they've got updates to games. That's great. Um, they also have uh, widgets. Now, the widgets apparently are powered by Edge. So I guess this is a borderless Edge panel uh, with, with small widgets in it. Again, does that sound like Mac and Apple and originally Android? Um, yes. You know, it's, they're, they're all kind of converging on some of these features. And so that, I find that pretty interesting. Um, and so that's that. The uh, other thing is they've updated the store. Great. We'll see where that goes. But what they've also included now is Android applications. So I know for a while you've been able to run Android applications through virtual machines like VirtualBox uh, and special VMs. Uh, and of course, through the Android uh, you know, SDK, through its emulator. But now they're deploying a native, I shouldn't say native, they've, they're deploying their own CPU-based virtual uh, machine for Android, much like Apple is doing for iOS applications and iPad applications. So doesn't that sound familiar? Um, they're all kind of touching base and leapfrogging and catching up with each other. Uh, and this is Windows really just doing that, which is, I think, you know, great for Windows users. Um, so the Android apps on the PC is going to be uh, powered by the Amazon App Store. So this must be some features uh, where they're integrating that. The other thing they're doing is if you bring your own commerce engine to the Microsoft store, and this is kind of big news, they are letting you keep 100% of the revenue. So if you can power the store features, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that's an API or what have you uh, that you have to plug into. But if you power all the content yourself uh, for the store and do your own commerce features, I assume, uh, at least, then you keep 100% of the revenue. And that's big news if you 
are already selling on other marketplaces and just want to integrate with the Windows Store. Now, the big question is, what's the volume going to be like? I think with Windows 11 getting a lot more uh, usable, you might find more people on Windows devices. Uh, in fact, you know, I've been doing um, Windows uh, 10 uh, with a, with a uh, Surface Book for a while, off and on. Um, and then my wife uh, got a uh, Surface, uh, I forget the name of the smaller uh, Surface Laptop, uh, Surface Laptop Go. It's a great environment now, and I think this will make it even better. Um, it's the point now where if you're not a programmer and if you don't need the Linux experience, hold on to that, um, Windows 11 is going to be a great option for you. Um, you know, the other thing is, if you are a Linux user, Windows subsystem for Linux is getting better and better and better. And in fact, by this fall, I believe, it's going to have integrated uh, uh, Linux Windows apps. So basically X11-based uh, applications. So if you're a, a Linux programmer and you want to bring up a Linux browser or what have you, you don't have to hack around to turn that on. That'll be native with uh, the Windows uh, scripting for Linux. So you can create your Ubuntu instance and have desktop applications from Ubuntu right on your Windows screen. So a lot of really great things happening on the Windows side of the house. Um, I'm personally a huge Mac fan, so I've gone back to Mac again uh, and I'm happy with it. But if you're looking at you know, for your kids or, you know, for your family, or if you just love Windows uh, or like Windows, you can certainly get a hold of any one of the number of Windows devices and be very productive. And it's going to look nicer starting with Windows 11. I believe this is coming out around the Christmas time, uh, holiday time, I should say, at the end of the year. So that's Windows 11. Check it out. Um, I'm sure there's, you know, alphas that are coming out. Uh, and so if you're really crazy and you have a laptop you want to play around with on it, you know, you could join their beta program and check it out. On the other end of the spectrum, headline uh, from Ars Technica, Dan Gooden on 624. Uh, it's, I'm totally screwed. Western Digital MyBook Live users wake up to find their data deleted. This is a massively bad situation for anyone who has a MyBook. I had one of these at one point. I moved everything into the cloud um, a long time ago. And so I used like, you know, you know uh, OneDrive and, and, and uh, you know, Dropbox. And iCloud uh, for various things. And I have too many places things are. Uh, but this was where I backed up a lot of my photos to for years. So it turns out that Western Digital uh, stopped uh, supporting the MyBook live storage devices and services about five years ago. But all of a sudden, mass incidents of disk wiping are happening. Uh, on Western Digital support forum, people are freaking out. Um, and none of the, the data has been restored as of yet, at least as of this article. Uh, for example, and this is a quote from the article, all my data is gone. I have a Western Digital MyBook Live connected to my homeland and worked fine for years, the person who started the thread wrote. I've just found that somehow all of the data on it is gone today, while the directory seemed there but empty. Previously, this two terabyte volume was almost full, but now it shows full capacity. So whatever the reason, whether this is something where this was a hack that someone came in and, you know, was doing that or it was an accidental, uh, you know, change the code or some service that's required to be online to keep the files there, some crazy thing, it's bad. Uh, so we'll keep track of this and see what's going on. But if you have one of these and you haven't powered them on yet, do not connect them to the internet and keep them off until you can see what Western Digital's approach is to fixing this. All right. Again, that's an Ars Technica article. We're going to have all of these on the feed uh, in the, in the chat for the feed. We'll have all of our links here. So you can take a look and check in uh, on Dan Gooden's article on Ars Technica. Thanks, Dan, for that one. 
React Status. Now, there's a great newsletter out there called React Status. Uh, it's at react.statuscode.com. You can subscribe to it for free, and it gives you lots of great articles every time it comes out. Uh, but this one caught my eye, and it caught my eye mainly because it was talking about React 18. Um, and I haven't honestly been so buried in development lately, actually on a React app, that I haven't spent much time on where it was headed in the last couple months. So there's a couple things in here. So let's talk about React 18. There's someone put a summary in 12 tweets. Uh, and so it, you know, it's nice to see. Uh, I, I wasn't spending too much time on React, so now I can check it out. Um, provably Flarney uh, writes, I love that name. Um, React 18 Alpha was published and has exciting new features. For now, you don't need to read more unless you're curious. Well, we're curious, so let's go in there. Um, and so this also points to the actual blog article for the plan for React 18. But let's just look at the summaries because that's easier. Um, so first of all, they have a working group called React WG. And that's good to know. So now they're having kind of an official working group where you know, community leaders and uh, library authors can all communicate with the React team. Uh, and it's, you know, they say it's a diverse and friendly group. So you can see what's going on in the discussions there. And that's a good thing to see. Um, that's on GitHub uh, slash React WG dash React dash 18. Um, next, um, there's a new feature in React 18 called automatic batching. Now, one of the things React does, and it's a component library for the web, if you're not sure what it is, it's, you know, laying out components for graphical interfaces, I should say for user interfaces uh, that are web-based running in JavaScript. Um, when you're updating React components, there's a state you can store data in. So let's say your component is a form, all the fields probably live in state. Um, if your code calls set state multiple times, right now it will update the component. It will re-render the component every time you call set state. So it could flicker a couple of times, for example. And if, and if you do things like modify your layouts based on something, um, you know, it could do that a couple of times. And of course, you want to optimize that out, but that could be something you're dealing with. Now in React 18, all calls will be batched, even if they're done in a set timeout. Uh, or in a data fetch, because it's going to improve rendering performance. So you can check out that. It's in React Working Group uh, as a discussion, number 21. So you can check that out. Um, there are concurrent features in React 18. I'm probably going to look at this later, uh, and this is more of a deep dive, so I'm not going to talk too much about them. But basically, things that happen in parallel where smaller components dynamically can update themselves at the same time as other components to speed up the user interface. But those features are opt-in probably because they change the way some things happen. So you don't have to worry about it if you haven't turned it on, but you could potentially really improve things uh, if you do turn them on. Um, let's see here, what else do we have? Oh, I guess that's it. No, where's 512? Let's see here. Here we go, 612. Um, so concurrent rendering, again. You can opt pieces of your application into this. So if you've got multiple components that you really want to load quickly in the background, you can turn on start transition. Uh, and that would be, I guess, like, you know, component did mount or something. Uh, and those can run in parallel. Um, an example she gives here is updating the value of an input on key press should be instant, but fetching and rendering a search result list can happen slower. Wrapping the results list update and start transition tells React that update can be done in the background at a lower priority. 
Um, and so, you know, more information there. Uh, again, we'll post the link to this Twitter feed so you can take a look at all these things. Uh, React DevTools. Uh, now you're going to be able to see which components are suspended. So there's a suspense tag that came out in React, I think 16, uh, that, that lets you kind of show something while that component is loading. Um, so which components are suspended. You can see that now in the React Dev tools coming up. Uh, and also you can find out which components are being rendered at this new lower priority asynchronously um, with the, with the transition uh, hook. They also talk, she also talks a bit about the research process for how the React team goes to things. So for example, they design new features based on first principles and good user experience, which is good to hear. Uh, give new stuff to Facebook engineers first and iterate quickly. And then release the open source once it's solid with alphas, betas, release candidates and so, and so on. Um, and re, you know, re request for comments and so on. So that's really cool. Um, and also now we know about this uh, working group Twitter space. Um, and that's great, and, and GitHub. So the other thing that came out from this uh, article um, that I thought was interesting is Utopia. Uh, gotta love when an app has a name like Utopia, like it better be good. <laughs> if it's not good, then maybe it's like Utopia Light. And I guess like you get your drink, but there's like no water in it or something, who knows. Uh, but Play With Utopia uh, is a button on the Utopia site. And this is a web-based IDE for React. I spent zero moments on this. Um, so let's see here if I pop this open. Uh, I clicked yesterday, but I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. So I'm going to check this out. It's based in Visual Studio Code. It looks like it has a, a nice light interface to it. Somewhere in here, I got to the code before, uh, and I will, oh, here it is. So there's, if I double click on index or click on index, it should open. And like all good demos, it's failing on me. So that's cool. So maybe I shouldn't try this out. Anyway. It's a new IDE. I'm not sure if this is something that they're going to make commercial or not, but something to check out. Um, I always like using uh, tools uh, where you can like, like code sandbox, you know, where you can share snippets of code. So if someone asks me, hey, how does this feature React work? I want to integrate it in my code. I usually tell them in Angular, by the way, in Vue, I say, stop. Don't integrate a brand new feature of technology in your code directly. First, try it out in a sandbox. There's nothing better than creating a simple one-off sandbox to try your feature out, kick it around a little bit, and then when you really know how it works, then start integrating it into your project. Uh, but lots of mistakes have been made by trying new APIs and then abandoning them and leaving them in your package.json file, for example. It's better to find out in a throwaway project. So I think Utopia could be, maybe, another replacement for like a code sandbox or one of the other tools that's out there. Anyway, if you like those topics, check out React Status. Again, that's at react.statuscode.com. It's a free newsletter. And every once in a while when I look at that, I, I open my eyes and go, wow, what have I been doing the last three months? And I dig in and learn some new stuff. So it's a great resource. Okay. Next thing. I'm just putting a note out here because I found this interesting. I really would have preferred to talk with Sujan about this one, actually. But... Um, you know, as computer chips are getting smaller and smaller, and well, I shouldn't say they're getting smaller, the, the components on them are getting smaller and smaller down to, you know, you know less than five nanometers. Um, we're starting to see really weird stuff happening where circuits don't always behave the way they're supposed to. And you have to basically build in the fact that something might be unreliable. Um, there's a really interesting 
uh, blog article, DSHR's blog, blog.dshr.org from David Rosenthal. And it's titled Unreliability at Scale. Um, if you're interested in this kind of thing, deep, you can dig deeper. Um, what he was trying to do is try to find a way to, to you know, um, you know, keep large numbers of bits for long periods of time and see whether or not that's a fundamental engineering problem. Um, but what it comes down to, if you scroll down to this, if I could find it, with concerted debugging efforts, efforts and triage by multiple engineering teams, logging was enabled across all the individual worker machines at every step. This helped narrow down the host computer responsible for this issue. The host had clean system event logs and clean kernel logs. Um, but from a, so from a system health monitoring perspective, this one machine showed no symptoms of failure, but it sporadically produced corrupt results, which returned zero when the expected results were non-zero. So in looking at everything in here and dug down deeper, they found that they could create some assembly code or, or isolate some assembly code reproducing the defect. A 60-line assembly-level reproducer um, got it down from 430,000 lines to 60. Um, and the Facebook team says, silent data corruptions are real phenomena in data center applications running at scale. Um, what it comes down to is sometimes one core might have a problem in it. And in this particular core, when I can finally find it, I'm doing this kind of uh, at speed here, um, is one core was giving an incorrect result on one parameter coming in. So, you know, you think it's a, li a, a library, but it was actually a core that was malfunctioning. Okay, it says, uh, let's see, um, wider investigation found multiple kinds of these errors. Um, I know it's CEE stands, corrupt execution errors, um, that the detected incident is much higher than software engineers expect, that they're not just incremental increases in the background rate of hardware errors, that these can manifest long after initial installation, scary, and that they typically afflict specific cores of multi-core CPUs rather than the entire chip. They refer to these cores as mercurial cores, like, you know, unpredictable uh, hothead cores. Um, and so um, bottom line is as things get smaller and smaller and smaller, some cores might have problems that fail in really odd ways. Uh, they have lists of these like violations of lock semantics leading to application data corruption and crashes. Data corruption is exhibited by various load store vector and coherence operations and so on. Corruptions affect garbage collection. Now, the reason this is important is we're trying to scale things across many CPUs now. And as the CPUs get smaller in terms of their physical size, uh, and you've got more and more and more of them, it magnifies the number of places this can happen. Um, and so you've got larger server fleets, as it's saying here, increased attention to overall reliability, improvements in software development that reduce the rate of software bugs. So now you're finding the hardware bugs. Just something to be aware of, as it may be something that becomes more important, that maybe there are are things where you are going to have to expect that some operations fail and then correct for them uh, in the long run. Uh, and so this originally came from uh, an article on the register. We'll link to that as well. Uh, and so these are really good reading, especially if you're going to be doing massively parallel operations or large amounts of data manipulation, uh, something to be concerned with and pay attention to in the future as things scale up even more. This is another article, Scaling Relational Databases, uh, SQL Databases. And the only reason I brought this one up is because I've been doing relational databases since the 
well, the earth cooled. Uh, and then after that, um, I guess there was progressive rock in the seventies, but anyway, so the point being, I've been doing SQL databases for a long time. In fact, one of my first computer science things that I ever learned was Oracle, uh, after learning programming languages. So I thank my college for that. But a lot of the scaling you'll see in SQL databases, uh, a lot of the stuff hasn't really changed much because relational databases still operate the way they did. It's just the massively parallel operations and the way of dealing with, you know, multiple IOs and pulling together uh, has changed. And the different types of feature sets you can add to them, like text searching or, you know, um, temporal date-based data ranges you can add uh, are new. But there's some real basic things you need to pay attention to in a relational database. Um, you know, so for example, you may, uh, in this article, by the way, is a uh, stribney.name, their blog, uh, and it doesn't have like a name of a person here. Oh, let's see. It's the author name. I want to give him credit. Uh, Peter Stribney. Okay. So there we go. Um, and he has a book coming out. I'll plug it for him. Uh, efficient developer. Cool. Um, but anyway, you know, you have things that you concern yourself with that have not changed. You know, for example, that you need to process potentially large, deep tables of data, right? So how do we manipulate and manage the data storage to be optimal for searching and retrieving and inserting as well and updating? Um, do Does your database require heavy insert and update load? Does it require heavy query load? Does it require both? And that's sometimes really a challenge to do both things for one table, uh, for example making select queries faster? Are you joining? Are you grouping? Are you sorting and aggregating? Um, you know, how do you deal with that? So we're going to see the same types of techniques that have been used for decades on many of these things, which are things like tuning indexes and how much space you have left on every page and things like that. Um, how do we deal with concurrency? Can I do it with one server? Do I replicate it and put multiple servers out there with its own issues? Um, but some, some, some of the things that he brings up, um, updating the database, Certainly, as you're uh, moving to newer versions of databases, the, the database engine gets uh, potentially faster uh, and more scalable. So if you're sitting on an old version of Postgres or MySQL for an application and you're seeing performance problems, in general, the features in a relational database, you just get new ones and upgrades for the most part. It doesn't necessarily break any old features. So testing a newer version of the database you might find that it, it takes more uh, less memory per connection, for example, or that it's quicker to connect and disconnect, or that the queries run a bit quicker because of new um, physical algorithms that it's using. Um, you could scale vertically, right? Um, so you could set up uh, more CPUs, you know, make, make one database server be more robust, especially in the cloud. Uh, it's easy, especially if you're using like RDS on Amazon, uh, you know, they're, they're a service that, offers databases, you could say, you know what, I'm going to go to a database engine, I'm going to change my engine from a four by to an eight by and maybe I'm going to double the RAM and see what updates that provides for me in terms of speed. Can I service more clients? Do I have more headroom for more connected clients with more memory? Uh, and so on. So you can certainly scale vertically, make it you know stronger, uh, maybe add more disk, uh, maybe speed up the disk IO if you're paying for certain levels of speed. Uh, and so on, stripe things across multiple disks and so on, if that's really, if it's huge data sets. Um, certainly that's kind of things you can do. More RAM makes it easier for you to do queries that are more complex, that have more indexes involved, um, you know, that uh, maybe you're creating temporary tables to boil things down, um, caching more of the database so RAM can help. So certainly scaling vertically. And again, has this changed? 
it's just become easier now with cloud-based services if you're serving on the cloud to reconfigure your running server with more horsepower. So certainly you can start with that. And if you can get away with that, it's less complexity to manage. But if that one database dies and one server dies, what do you do, right? So I don't know, you, you've, you've got to potentially have some sort of failover or replicated server to scale horizontally. Uh, that's coming up. Uh, leveraging application caches. Are you using a Redis or Memcached or something like that? You could certainly do things like that uh, to speed up things that get called multiple times from your application as long as they can be uh, you know, cached. So that's another thing companies do. Using more efficient data types. Something you want to remember in databases is the wider the field type you have, the more space per row you take up, which makes the rows longer, which makes the IOs bigger. Um, if you're scanning the table and if you're indexing that column, you're not going to index a text field, right? A huge text field, uh, indexing a, 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 you know, a tiny int or something like that, or, and sometimes that's not always helpful because you might only have a few values and what have you, but let's say you're indexing a number like a foreign key. Certainly that can help with joining, right? So there's things you can do there. Um, you know, so, but the point being that don't make some, uh, key or something you're indexing huge, unless you realize that the tree structure might also be large that you're storing and you'll have to navigate that larger tree structure. Can it fit in four bytes instead of eight or two instead of four? That said, memory is cheap. So if it's not that big of a difference and you don't have too many of those indexes, maybe that four byte size or the eight byte size makes sense because the data needs to be that wide. So you don't have to go crazy, but just remember where you can be efficient with data types, variable length, for example, or smaller, you probably should, um, you know, just, Stay away from giant fixed length types where you can. Um, normalization of data means having the data in the least number of places possible. So, for example, don't repeat, um, you know, a, a, a character uh, string over and over again uh, because it's wasting space. You can put a key in instead that points to a table with that, that string, and that's normalizing that data. Um, but in some cases you can overly normalize the data. So you have to do like nine joins to get a basic piece of information. So there's always a push and pull on either of these sides. You can either make things really normalized and clean, or you can query them really quickly and without a lot of head scratching of why do I have a nine table join? Um, so somewhere in the middle, something where most things are normalized, but you'll maybe duplicate some small pieces of data uh, that make things fast to retrieve in some cases can really speed things up. Same thing with pre-computing data. If data gets computed, but it takes a lot of CPU time to do that, or you're doing a large deep query because of it, um, and it's calculating each of those rows every time, maybe you could pre-calculate these. So this is a really good article. I won't go through all of these. Um, you know, there's tips here on indexing. There's tips on just learning how your execution plan for queries happens. That's really important. So in most databases, there's some sort of explain that shows, yes, I used an index on this query. Or, you know, you didn't have index for me, so I scanned 3 million rows. That means you really ought to think about an index because how much time do you have for the user waiting around to scan the entire table? So this just goes on. It's a great reference. Uh, I really like it. And um, definitely worth looking at. Uh, it caught my eye. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, front ends, uh, GraphQL. So someone came up with uh, Mi Mikhail Tiskovics. I'm sorry if I said your name wrong. I'm sure I did, sir. Um, damn vulnerable GraphSQL application, GraphQL rather. Um, so 
one of the things uh, that he uh, did was he he wanted to see what the strengths of a library are when he looks at the technologies, but he was looking at um, GraphQL and thought, you know what? There's a number of ways you could break a GraphQL application and attack it. Um, you know, it's a very popular um, alternative to REST for an API. Um, GraphQL is, is kind of like a query language. Um, you still have to write some code, even though you have the GraphQL there. Um, but it's a query language you can issue from the client, from a React or uh, other front end, and ask questions of your back end. And he realized there were some ways that uh, not all of the APIs necessarily that provide GraphQL might uh, solve. So things like, you know, uh, issuing large bash queries or a deep recursion kind of query, something resource intensive, um, and so on. Um, asking for information where like you're, you're introspecting things and you get more information than you need um, and maybe things you can use for attacking. Could you do command injections? Um, Cross-site scripting, login, log spoofing, uh, and things like that. So what he did was he wrote a GraphQL engine that's extremely hackable. <laughs> um, I just find this interesting because it would be fun to like write attacks against it and then take a look at those attacks and point them at a another engine and see whether or not you know like the Java GraphQL uh, server engine or at Apollo uh, or other ones uh, and see what they do. Uh, the ones for Python, for example. So he put a project out there on GitHub, uh, damn vulnerable GraphQL application. It's basically just a sitting duck when you run it. Please don't use this for anything except attacking it. Um, but uh, it's cool that he did this. I think this is a great idea. Um, let's see if we can break something and then take that code that you used to break it, see if you can break, break an open source library and then you know put a defect out there for people to fix it. I think that's a great idea. And that brings us to the end of uh, the Chariot uh, Tech Chat Tuesday. Uh, I will say that Chariot is looking for uh, uh, additional employees. Uh, we're looking for people across the spectrum of full stack developers. Um, we're looking for uh, iOS developers uh, and data engineers as well. And you can see Android is there as well, uh, especially if you're good with um, you know, AWS platform. Uh, if you've done, you know, uh, any kind of application development, whether server or serverless, you know, Docker based or, or what have you, um, we certainly would love to talk to you uh, because we're, we're growing and, uh, you know, we're at a point now where, you know, we're putting out and getting the word out that we're hiring again. So if you're interested, please hit us up at chariotsolutions.com slash careers. Um, you'll, you'll see our careers right there and you can apply uh, and talk to us and see if we might be a fit for you. And again, remember, on August 1st, we will be releasing the Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise videos for 2021, and there are some fantastic talks there. So that's it. So for this week, uh, this is the Tech Chat Tuesday, and thanks so much for attending and uh, watching. And reach out to us on Twitter at, at TechCast or an email with techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. Otherwise, make it a good two weeks. <laughs>